Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. No one has been more articulate about value than Grantham, Mayo, and Van Otterloo. Ben Inker joins us this morning in support of Jeremy Grantham and the need to consider value among raging tech growth. Ben, thank you for joining us. You've got a quarterly letter out. I love the detail you go into. There's no consultants here telling you what to do. What is the number one message that we get wrong as we put in the next buy ticket for Apple and Amazon? Uh, the number one thing that I think people get wrong is if you buy a market, if you buy a company, if you buy a situation where things are about as good as they have ever been, uh, you're probably not going to get a great return going forward. Uh, you get the best returns when you are buying at not the best times. Uh, this has been a wonderful time for big tech. This has been a wonderful time for the S&P. You really want to be looking for the places where this hasn't been quite as wonderful. Where are um, they? Where, where is the mean reversion going constructively back to the mean? So uh, what we see is value stocks generally. And I think you want to be smart about how you're defining value stocks. But honestly, any way you define value stocks, they look really cheap relative to history. Um, and what we think is if you're looking intelligently at uh, the valuations of the stocks that have been left behind. They're trading at some of the biggest discounts to the market we have ever seen. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a really good economic reason for it. So sooner or later, you're going to get a really good return out of it. Ben, there's a reason why some of the big tech stocks have done so well. And it comes from the cash that they are generated. It comes from the fact that they are somewhat independent of some of the price pressures because they don't have as many employees relative to their overall cash flow. It also comes from the fact that they are on the vanguard of a shift, a technological shift in the community that was frankly accelerated during the pandemic. How do you sort of counteract all of those forces and say, look, that's all baked in. These other stocks are going to benefit as we revert to a normal economy. Economy. Well, I'd say a couple of things. One is there's a lot of craziness going on in the economy. We do see some stocks trading at utterly loony valuations. Big tech is not the core of that, right? You can say, hey, Google's been on a great run. You can say Apple's been on a great run. They don't look cheap, but they don't look stupid. Um, there's plenty of stuff in the market that does look pretty stupid. Like what? And the, um, you know, the, the Teslas, the AMCs, the meme stocks are trading at valuations where you have to assume utterly extraordinary things uh, to get a decent return. A quarter of the market right now is trading at more than 10 times sales, which is utterly crazy. Stocks trading at 10 times sales or more historically have underperformed the market profoundly. Um, and today, a quarter of the market is trading at that huge well, multiple. But Ben, some people would argue if you try to go to, say, the Russell 2000 as a value proposition because they tend to be less loved, you end up buying a lot of AMC, a lot of GameStop, which suddenly account for a bigger proportion of these indexes. How do you get around that? Well, I think buying, buying the indices right now is a tough thing, right? Because whenever you're buying the indices, you are buying those stocks which have very high market caps. 
in the case of, you know, Apple and Amazon and stuff, they are legitimately huge companies. For some of these companies, AMC is, is a wonderful example. Well, the company isn't huge, just the market cap has exploded. Um, and I think you want to be careful doing anything that assumes that that market cap is correct. Right. The Russell has had a heck of a run uh, since the lows of last year. It is not cheap either. I'm not making the argument that the S&P is expensive by the Russell, too. I'm saying growth has been on a great run. Growth is expensive by value. Ben Inker, value is founded on certain Bibles. One of them is Graham Dodd and Cottle. You and I read it cover to cover ages ago. You guys have led the charge on growth. The growthiness that we've got now is unusual. All of that is based on Fed and central banks blowing out their balance sheets. How do you perceive markets reacting when they finally have to pull in their balance sheets or at least stabilize them? You know, I really wish I knew. Uh, you know, it, it's not just that what the Fed has done in the aftermath of, of COVID has been unprecedented. In, even insofar as we have precedents, we saw what happened in the GFC. Man, it's really hard to truly disentangle the impact of quantitative easing from the impact of very low interest rates. I mean, yes, we had a taper tantrum, but it was a pretty short-term phenomenon. The Fed has this belief that balance sheet expansion is the equivalent of a, of a, of a further drop in interest rates. Um, that belief is not really backed by strong empirical evidence. I don't know what impact the Fed balance sheet and the expansion of the Fed balance sheet has had. Um, it, it seems like it would be the kind of thing that would push people more into risky assets. But when we've tried to crunch the data, we don't see an obvious smoking gun for here's how that that impacted the market before. Here's how undoing it is going to impact the market now. Ben, valuable insight this morning. We appreciate it. Ben Inker there of GMO, the head of asset allocation. Right now, to continue our discussion of now what for Central Asia, Robert Hormatz joins us. He's the Tideman Advisors that barely describes a cross-party public service to this nation. Yes, working with Secretary Clinton, but long ago and far away working for others and driving the 148 miles from Kabul to the Khyber Pass. Bob Hormatz, you're one of the few people with real boots-on-the-ground experience over there. How does the United States now manage the Western Pakistan tribal regions, how does the United States manage a new relationship with Pakistan? Well, it's going to be a challenge because we've seen the Taliban as uh, our enemy for so long. And now we find that we're working with them to help get people out of the country. And I suspect that over a period of time, we're going to have to have uh, something of a dialogue with the Taliban. The other point is that the bigger threat to the United States is really ISIS or ISIS-K, and the Taliban is their arch enemy. So it may turn out that if ISIS-K starts um, threatening its neighbors or us uh, over the right. longer run, we're going to have to work with the Taliban to try to right. suppress them. In fact, in the earlier agreement, 
They Bob, said that they would not allow terrorists to operate from their territory. And Bob, I want you to take a broader picture here, which only you can do. With the, you know, you darkened the door tufts a few years ago. You can do this. I want you to take us back to John Kenneth Galbraith as ambassador to India, and we had to manage India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. What do we do now? We don't have Robert Hormats. We don't have JKG. What do we do now to manage that that strange relationship? Well, it is going to be uh, difficult. The Indians themselves now who have uh, regarded Pakistan, of course, as a threat, are worried about several things. They're worried about the fact that there may be uh, jihadist elements based in Afghanistan who move over into uh, Pakistan or the disputed territories or Kashmir and uh, pose threats to India. So what India is now doing already, we've just learned, is they've been having uh, <clears throat> secret meetings with Taliban authorities to try to make sure right. that the Taliban can control these forces okay. in the country <clears throat> and elsewhere. Bob, you know, we talked to John Bolton about this yesterday. Bob, you're the expert at this. Should Blinken be on the next plane to Delhi? Well, I do think we need to have a lot of cooperation with Delhi. And I would certainly, if I were Tony Blinken, be working with the with the Indians um, on how we deal with the Taliban and how we control uh, ISIS and ISIS groups that are in that are in Pakistan that could cause lots of disruptions both in India. Uh, and uh, and the areas around it, and certainly could play a, a disruptive role in Kashmir. The other interesting thing is that we may have a lot of interests in common with the Chinese and the Russians. They are concerned about ISIS and ISIS-K, so, and uh, they want to be able to work with, and China, of course, has a border with Afghanistan, so they want to work with uh, the Afghanis to try to control these movements that could base themselves in Afghanistan, yeah. but could be disruptive to the region itself. Bob, taking a step back, there is a concern that President Biden talks in a much nicer tone toward the allies, toward uh, Europe in particular, uh, but doesn't necessarily act that differently than the Trump administration when it comes to policies and the way uh, that things are carried out. And that's one thing uh, that people have argued has just been perpetuated with the Afghanistani exit. How much do you think that they are actually changing the dynamic post-Trump versus just just continuing it? Well, it, it, this particular incident is going to uh, have an impact because the Allies were concerned they weren't uh, consulted in advance. And now, of course, the Germans are having elections and uh, refugees uh, from Afghanistan are going to be one issue. Do, do the Germans take them? Do they? How, how much do they trust the United States? I think we're going to see, in part as a result of this, a much closer set of ties and consultations between the United States and many of our allies and many countries that are not allies yeah. about how to deal with the Taliban and particularly how to deal with this refugee issue. This is going to be a very big issue yeah. in American politics. And we have just begun to uh, recognize this. They're now in temporary quarters, but we've got to find long-term uh, uh, homes for a lot of these people. And we're going to have to work with the allies to do it. So. I think the, the, the lack of real pre-consultations in the eyes of some of these countries is going to mean we're going to have to spend a lot more time 
working with the Allies on a multitude of post um, takeover Tal- Taliban issues. Ambassador Hormetz, thank you so much for joining us today with Tideman Ad- Advisors. It is not to be understood that we invented this out of thin air. Long ago, Paul, and far away, there was a plan. And off the back of an envelope, the plan, I had a beverage of my choice in my left hand, was, well, wait a minute, Richard Edelman says this, and I can't convey to all listening nationwide and around the world the importance of the Edelman Trust Barometer in launching me. It's breathtaking. <laughs> Richard Edelman joins us 400 years on through a pandemic to tell us about the trust barometer of our institutions. As always, Richard Edelman, thank you so much uh, for joining. Good morning, Tom. What have you learned in the pandemic? Tom, the most important finding uh, of this study is the rise of belief-driven employees. And the employee is no longer willing just to work for pay and uh, advancement. He or she wants flexible work hours and uh, also wants to work for a company that is dedicated to improving society. And the amazing thing, Tom, is somewhere between, depending on the country, 20 and 40% of employees say that they're going to quit in the next six months. They've gotten through the pandemic and, and, and they want something new. By two to one, the reason for quitting is societal ambition of their employer. They don't agree with the values of the company. 60% said that. Only 30% say that's because of cash compensation or advancement. Oh, come on. You're not telling me. I mean, I get what you're saying, Richard. This is a tough sell, the bottom, The bottom line is they want to be paid more and find a social belief in their CEO. You're telling me No. I'm telling you that table stakes is the wages and uh, upside in their career. And the additional aspects of flexibility um, on hybrid work or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, a staggered shift for a manufacturing company so that you don't have to be there at 7 a.m. on the GM line. You could be there at 8 if you're a mom or a dad dropping a kid at school, but then you still could work the eight hours. We're right. going to have to figure this out. There's a new social contract that we're going to have to create, and it can't just be okay. for the white-collar worker. And, and you know, that's the unfairness of it all. What's so important, Paul, i got to paint the picture for you. I'm yep. at Davos, and Lionel Barber would have his Wednesday opening FT Edelman Trust Barometer soiree, and they would invite me. And, you know, be Richard Edelman and Mimosas and, you know, <laughs> Julie Andrews singing in the background. Richard, you've done this year after year. Is this about corporations and the new belief, or is it about the failure of government as an institution? As always, Tom, it's a little of both. Government has disappointed us. I mean, the most recent is, what are we supposed to be doing about vaccinations? As employers, we're left on our own. You know, do we mandate them? Do we say you have to have a vaccine before you come to the office? Do we wear masks? I mean, all of this is a bit in limbo. So business is stepping into the void left by government. And that's increasingly true on pay, on benefits, on even vaccination. So it is true, though, interestingly, that if a employer 
has high trust from its employees, it drags up all the institutions and trust. It's one of the shockers in this study is, you know, if you have a, a nine or above um, on a 10 scale uh, level of trust in your employer, all the other institutions um, from media to uh, business get much higher scores. And if it's only a level five, then we're in trouble um, because Richard, then wonder- collapse of trust in institutions. Richard, I wonder how much of this is a function of the fact that pre-pandemic we were at full employment. Now, uh, coming out of the pandemic, despite the Delta variant, you know, there's a lots of employers that need lots of employees. So there's some leverage for the employee. How much it is that, or how much is it? Again, like as you're suggesting, a real fundamental change in the construct between employer and employee. I think in the back of every employee's head is still. I'm afraid of being fired on the basis of uh, artificial intelligence or or, or other tech. Eighty percent of people say that still today. And so they're thinking, look, also, I've just seen my mom die. Fifty percent of Americans actually had a person they knew pass away or be sick from COVID. That's a big shock to the system. So, um, you know, we're having traumatic stress syndrome a little bit, and we're reevaluating who we are and what we want to be. And that's why I think it's a tripod now. It's pay and upside. It's flexible work conditions. And I want to work for an employer. I want to succeed. You know, it's really important to have all three. Yeah. Richard Edelman, thank you so much for your support of our effort over the years. And folks, I can't say enough about the Edelman Trust Barometer and the other social studies uh, that Edelman and Company uh, do. Richard Edelman, the founder of Edelman and Company. Let's catch up with Roger Biddle, shall we? Capital Economics founder and chairman and the author of a book, The Death of Inflation. That was the mid-90s. Roger joins us now in 2021. Roger, if you wrote that book today, what would the title be? I'm not sure. I think I might be tempted to call it The Rebirth of Inflation. Uh, I'd probably adopt a completely different title. The title, you know, at the time, 96 I published it, caused fantastic argument. The Bundesbank in particular were very angry with me. Inflation, they said, can't possibly die. Uh, I'm worried about inflation resurging now. Roger Buda, we had Jeff Lacker on the other day, the former president of the Richmond Fed, and he was extremely articulate about a need for preemptive central banks. And I asked him where the inflationistas got it wrong. And at the same time, I talked to Gita Gopinathoff, Jackson Hole, about modern monetary theory. Mm. In the last 10 years, have we simply moved our inflation dynamic, our price dynamic, over to a balance sheet dynamic, whether it's fiscal policy or it's all this debt buildup we see out there? I, I, I don't think either of those things, really. I think what's happened is a combination of two things. First of all, we've continued to have various supply factors which have been bearing down on inflation, and those are the things that I identified uh, in the middle 90s. They've been continuing. And then, of course, for a variety of reasons, we've had a relatively weak demand. And in key countries like the U.S., I think those two conditions are, are, now, are now changing. I mean, the U.S. economy is surging. You've got this massive stimulus from policy at a time when I don't think there's quite the same downward pressure on prices from various supply factors. And in many cases, of course, there's upward pressure on prices. As for uh, MMT, I think it's just, quite frankly, profoundly misguided. 
Roger, can we get sustained increases in inflation without more wage inflation? And, and based on where we are, wage inflation that we're not seeing? Uh, well, you can in some circumstances. I mean, I think they're pretty unlikely. I mean, you've got to have um, either a very, very marked shift towards profits or big increases in external costs, which are pushing inflation for a considerable time. Uh, in the end, of course, that will come to an end. No, I think, you know, in really to continue uh, with high inflation for quite a while, we're going to need <coughs> wage inflation. At the moment, uh, there are some signs of that. It depends where you look, but right. uh, in some countries, wages are going up quite a lot. But, you know, the whole thing about inflationary process, this is what makes it so difficult to forecast to set policy, is the answers aren't always obvious to you. They aren't given you on a plate. You don't suddenly see <clears throat> the whole process in, yeah. uh, unfold immediately. It happens over time, gradually. Roger, one final question, very important here. You could literally be lined up right now working at the Bank of England, helping uh, Governor Bailey. Do you, do you presume smooth curves and smooth reaction functions when we're finally over with the stimulus party, or do you have an angst out there about jump conditions we don't see coming? Well, I'm worried about a jump, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I would act on policy sooner rather than later, in both the states, actually, and the UK. These <coughs> current levels of interest rates are absurdly low. The uh, monetary stimulus is extraordinary in the course of history. We've got to move back to some sort of normality, and I would do it sooner rather than later yeah. and do it gradually in order to avoid the thing you're referring to, Tom. That's to say that at some point or other, we get a shock and the policy makers overreact. Roger, thank you, sir. It's good to hear from you, as always. Roger Boodle there, Capital Economics founder and chairman on perhaps the rebirth, the rebirth of inflation. Right now, I want to rationalize to the year end, and we do that with James Athey of Standard uh, Charter. Thrilled that he could uh, join us. Standard Investments, Aberdeen Standard Investments, I should say. James Athey, thank you so much uh, for joining us. James, it's September 1. Guys like you have to re-rationalize till 12-31-21. How much rationalization is going on right now? How much of institutional money is behind the, the, the benchmark? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, the fourth quarter brings with it its own special set of dynamics. Normally, summer has tended to be a quiet period, and certainly in terms of primary market activity, it, it's generally pretty dead. And then as we get towards the end of August, we look into the fourth quarter and think, well, there's still a heck of a lot of companies and governments out there with funding needs. They're going to come to market. So you, you get this kind of concession event into the fourth quarter supply this year. It's a bit more complicated because we've got the potential for some some relatively major monetary policy changes uh, as well. Both of those have the potential to to drive bond yields higher. But you now, as you guys were talking about in your previous section there, thinking about bond yields in isolation doesn't get you very far. You have to think about what's going to happen yeah. to bond yields, what's going to happen to the yield curve, what's going to happen <clears> to the dollar, and what does that mean for risk assets? And that's where it gets a bit more complicated. John, I'm still of the opinion that fourth quarter is going to be about a flatter yield curve in the US. Yeah, John, Standard & Poor's 500, 12 months trailing, up 28%. Year to date, John, it's terrible. It's up 20%. It's not bad, is it, Tom? How many people are behind? A lot of people. And James, I think the big question right now is what dense risk appetite we know that the equity market can go higher in a rising rate regime over at the Federal Reserve. We know that the equity market can rally even as they pull back on QE. What will hit risk appetite? 
Yeah, I mean, we know all of these things until we don't. I, I, you know, I try really hard to avoid foiling into to sort of some of the the basic cognitive bias traps and the status quo bias, I think, is 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 one of the one of the strongest. We have a tendency to believe that what is true today will continue to be true tomorrow. <clears throat> By the same token, I can sit here in front of you guys week after week saying I think the equity market is is fragile, uh, and and I'll end up with egg on my face more often than not. But I think the kind of equity market that we live in now is one where, you know, you get such long periods of this grinding low volatility rally but when it does crack it you get all of the volatility in one go and i still think we're headed for that sort of episode but what the phrase we use is vulnerabilities not triggers ex ante it's almost always impossible to point out a specific event or data point or uh, or you know happening which is going to be the trigger for things to turn around but what you can do is you can look at the market and say well how vulnerable is this market how expensive is it how much uh, are investors already positioned? What is investor sentiment like? And when you look at the equity market, how many people are buying on margin? What sort of investors are participating? What's breadth like? You know, what's the median stock doing relative to to the the index itself? And when you look at beneath the hood in all of these metrics, I just see weakness and vulnerability and unsustainable drivers. So I have no idea when the equity market will crack, but. I strongly believe that the fundamentals which are supposedly supporting equity prices up here are not anywhere near as supportive as, as many are making out. James, getting an idea for what you don't want to own, what do you want to own? Really difficult. People ask me that question, you know, outside of the industry and say, what should I do with my money? And give a big sigh and say it's very difficult. Everything is expensive. Not even just financial assets, alternative assets across the board. Some of the crazies going on in alternative uh, you know, places to park one's money, I, I find terrifying in the extreme. But for most investors, still owning a diversified portfolio of uh, you know, the basic financial uh, asset types is, is very sensible. What do I particularly want to own in my space? I still think that duration it has value because, yes, it's expensive, but it's not as expensive relative to the economic outlook as most other assets are. I think that's the biggest, Wait, uh, the biggest thing clear, that I would say. James, well, are you buying 30-year yes, bonds right now? Are you buying you know, the longest dated notes <laughs> in developed markets? Is that basically the way that you're uh, getting some confidence? In the US, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly where we're positioned. So we like 530s flatness. We like owning the long end because... Ultimately, the long end should be the clearest and cleanest expression of you know, the potential output of the US economy. And my observation, and this goes back to, again, a conversation you guys were having before about the labor market. My observation is that when policy in its various guises steps away from the US, from any major economy, the economy literally has a heart attack. So without temporary inputs from policymakers, yeah. The, the the state the current state of the economy is unsustainable therefore we will tend to negative growth until we find some equilibrium just, and the policy that we're engaging in is completely unsustainable and that tells me that we're still living in this unhealthy imbalanced over indebted uh, economy with lots of structural weaknesses which people are trying to deal with with cyclical policy uh, and that really does cap the, the extent to which yields can rise before it causes some sort of incident or, or accident I think we've seen a little, um, you know, a little episode of that already this year. But I continue to believe that that long term duration has better value than uh, alternatives. James Athey of Aberdeen Standard Investments, Senior Investment Manager. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.